Welcome to the Property Development Book Club podcast. Please be advised that panel members are expressing their own views and opinions, which should not be construed as advice. The audience must carry out their own research and consult an appointed professional for advice. You're tuning into the Property Development Book, and today we are talking about modern methods of construction, and I'm joined by an amazing group of professionals. I'm Adewale, I'm your host today, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. So the first question I would like to ask is, and before we even go into the questions, I think it's appropriate to start with introductions. So starting from Bola, can you please introduce yourself um, and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, Bola Gamethan, I'm a structural engineer and director of Tissue and Engineers. Perfect. Hannah Afalabi, Development Director for Balfour Beauty Investments, founder of Black Women in Real Estate. I'm Amandeep Kaura, I'm an architect by background, and I'm an associate at BeFirst. I'm Yemi Anadrin, I'm an architect and development manager uh, for the Meridian Water Team Enfield. Perfect, so you see we've got a very highly esteemed and professional team. So we're just going to dive into the questions. So the first question is, what is MMC and why should you use it? So I would like to start off with Bola, could you please give yeah, us sure. a view so, um, I mean, MMC is essentially seen as something that's different to what we've been doing um, over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah. So, something that's not necessarily done in traditional methods. Traditional methods could be seen as concrete, could be seen as um, steel, and sometimes it's also associated with construction off-site and um, essentially to bring on-site to make things quicker, faster, and maybe cheaper. Cheaper, maybe cheaper. <laughs> We're going to dive into that. So just for everyone's information, MMC stands for Modern Methods of Construction, and I'm now going to pass the baton on to Amandeep to give his explanation of what is MMC and why should we use it. So I'll just build on that. So it's about improvements both off-site and on-site, and Homes England define it under seven categories, and I'm not going to list out each one, but I would <laughs> give, the, the, give the ones that are most commonly used. So you've got category one, which is about volumetric um, off-site construction and that people could refer to as pods that come on lorries and effectively so hotels hotels or student accommodation yeah. or things like that yeah um, and they're they're kind of both both the primary structure but often the interior finishes all brought together on site as a product yeah um, category two is what we call a primary structure that's off-site fabricated and that kind of thing that could be things like uh, panels that fit together um, which could be steel precast concrete um, light gate steel, um, and then you have three, four, and five, uh, three and four, which are kind of non-systemized improvements. And category five are things like bathroom pods, kitchens pods, utility pods. Yeah. Um, a secondly, uh, secondly layer. So, amongst all of that, are the things that happen off-site and on-site. There can be things like improvements to the way you pour concrete. So, three D printed concrete. You can have automated cores that pour concrete at intervals and dry itself. So, it's a combination of on-site and off-site improvements. Your point was also earlier about why. Yeah. And I think that is the biggest question every client needs to ask themselves before they go on this MMC journey. Because a lot of people when they start with technology, they see technology as the answer, but they don't know what the question is that they're asking. Is it because they want to make uh, their buildings cheaper? Is it because they want to improve quality? Or is it because they want to tackle the climate change and climate crisis through improving sustainable methods of construction? So I would, I would say the why is different for every client, but you should define it before you go on your MMC journey. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you say that because this MMC topic, it's so large. 
and you can get very lost in innovating and even finding a way to, um, to apply it to your projects. Yeah. So, Hannah, what do you think? <laughs> Questions, what is OMC and why should you use it? Um, so I think Bola and Amadeep have defined what MMC is yeah. quite well. I think um, why it should be used is uh, is a very is a very easy I say easy uh, answer, but fundamentally it's about speed. So can you deliver quicker? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, is there less risk? Yes. Is there less waste? Yes. And so those are the positives of around MMC and why they should be used. The question. For me though is and i and i ask of bono and amandeep as well is actually what are the downsides then and the downsides for us as a client and what we've been hearing from contractors is yeah. that it's more expensive very much so. it's yeah. um and it takes a little bit longer to get on site initially because you so have the to lead design times are quite long. exactly yeah. so your lead times are long production um so even though you are on site sh for a shorter period of time your lead times are, are quite long and then um it actually costs more yeah. at the end of the day. And this goes back to the contractors overhead and profits yeah. associated with it. So there are I definitely is balances to uh to to um to the benefits of MMC. Having said that, most projects now especially are are using some form of MMC. Yeah. And so that's either the bathroom pods or uh, or your kitchen pods or your panelized um, cladding system. Yes. And those are things that I think have been a little bit more tried and tested and have proven to be less costly than, you know, putting bricks up. Yeah. Uh, have laid bricks. <laughs> and have laid, have laid bricks in situ. Yeah. Yeah. Or pouring concrete in situ. Yeah. So I think that Hannah raised a few points. I think firstly, we wanted to define what lead time is. So if I was going to leave my house today, the lead time would have been, I would have, had, I would have woken up taking a shower, kiss my kids, <laughs> put my clothes on, and then I would have left. So the time before you actually do something is considered lead yeah. time. So that is effective what we class as your preparation time. In construction terms, that involves design mm -hmm. from an architect. Structural engineers will be very heavily involved in that. And then you're going to have production from someone putting all of the, the stuff that you need to obviously deliver on site. And that is your lead time and delivery. Yeah. And then from installation, that's when the lead time stops and it goes in. So... Just bear that in mind. I feel I thought I'd throw that out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I think one of the um, interesting points when we talk about lead time and construction is actually the more time you invest in the design aspect, mm. the less likelihood of um, errors or, or mistakes happening in the construction. And one thing I suppose we that MMC is good at, and one thing we got to remember is that design time is cheap. When you compare it with actually on the in yes. the field construction time, fixing mistakes is a lot more expensive than actually um, the time you spend in designing. Well yeah. So actually investing in that lead time, although it is a disadvantage for MMC for major charges, but actually investing in, in that lead time, investing in if you like de-risking the project as much as you can in the beginning, in the beginning before a contractor is involved. Before the, well, <laughs> not necessarily before the contractor is involved, before involved, but before um, clients are paying for premiums, you know, before a yes. uh, spade is um, put in, in the ground. ground. Yeah. That's that's extremely valuable and that's a good advantage for MMC. I love that. And can, can I counter? Sorry, can I counter that? That I agree with you. As in, hundred percent, we have to design earlier and engage as many people as possible. But the other thing with MMC, and I'm not against MMC here, is that it, it takes away some of the flexibility. And yes, it's cheaper to, 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 to fix the designs prior to construction, but you still have to get through planning. 
Yeah. And there's still that planning risk of designing something that's fixed and then actually you get consultation from everyone and anyone yeah. and then you have to change that design yeah. and then you kind of you're kind of having to go back to the drawing board as to how to fix and flex something that is fundamentally less uh, malleable yeah I, I agree and disagree i'd mm -hmm. say it depends on the system you're using if you are going for a volumetric led pod type solution from a number of suppliers, mm -hmm. you are more or less buying, bound by their tight rules as soon as you've decided you're going with that mm. system. And then I agree with you, mm. there are a lot of challenges with actually trying to modify that because it is as it comes. But if you're looking at more category two panelized pods and other bits, yeah. then you have as much, I would say, you know, close to flexibility that you would with traditional in terms of modifying your design. Um, Whereas, like with with a volumetric pod, you more or less will work with that grid and it's fixed. And it's fixed. Yeah. So that's 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 so, the difference, I think. So. so I think just because of our listeners, some people may not know what a bathroom pod is, kitchen pods, or a utility pod. So I, yeah, I can just explain that. So it's like um, it's a sub assembly, which basically would mean you've effect effectively got bathrooms and kitchens and utility cupboards. These things are often repeat items within, particularly within housing design, they're tightly bound by space standards, London plan, and therefore they're gonna be highly repeated components within a building. And when they come as pod, there's effectively manufacturers and suppliers create the full assembly of a bathroom, which includes um, fitting out all of the tiles, um, tiles the bathroom itself, Toilets. the system, the sink, the tiling, the finishing, and all the pipe work, and then a secondary structure, which is a sort of steel structure that contains all of that, yeah. so that it's effectively ready to be picked up from a factory onto uh, a truck, which takes it to site, and then it's craned into the position it needs to be. Yeah, so I, be, I went to a development recently, I think it was like maybe like six, seven months ago, and you never guess what, it was a, it was a concrete frame building, yeah? yeah? And I walked in, and I had my hard hat on, and I walked in with a fully functional bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> it just felt weird. From, from the outside, it's probably yeah. like got rusty doors, and, yeah, rusty and you doors go in, you're like, the lights are new. So I I take, would you mind if I take us, maybe just zooming out a little bit in a slightly different direction, is that often, we talk about modern methods of construction as if it's all new. Yeah. But of course, we've been here, done mm -hmm. it before. So can we maybe have a little bit of a discussion about what went wrong previously? How have we learned from those things? When we talk about um, risks in terms of quality, um, how are we going to address those things so we're not making the same mistakes well, like, that we've made previously. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, um, you know, um, prefab was a dirty word, you know, back in the 90s. And that's, <laughs> that's essentially, if you like, the predecessors to MMC. And one of the issues were, you know, it was quality and, and reliability. Um, I feel, right now, I feel one thing that we are trying to do, or one thing is that um, lots of people are trying to do in the industry is try to understand the construction industry in its entirety. So mm -hmm. what I mean by that is in terms of the way contracts and designs are set up, it's very fragmented. Yeah. So you get consultant says I'm a consultant A, consultant says I'm consultant B, and we deal with, well actually it should be a, a, integrated. a, a integrated, a total design, an understanding yeah. of how the one works together and how you are contributing to that. And that's where BIM comes in. And that's where BIM comes in, absolutely, yeah. because it's a, I suppose mm -hmm. it's a, I suppose it's a um, it's a question about responsibility and actually like um, Deep was saying before about you know why are we doing it? Everyone buying into it and getting on that journey. So you know if we're working with architects or M and E guys, you know we are making sure that 
we look at everything as one and not say, okay, we're doing the structures, mm-hmm. move on. And because when you do that and move on, then that becomes, that's where the interfaces, because things yeah. fail on interfaces. Yeah. And, and that, also, sorry, yeah. <laughs> again, be good to hear from all of you that a big thing as well is about, okay, we get quality and precision but i think where things have gone wrong previously still depends on how you put these pieces together on site and mmc's often talked about kind of in terms of improving the skill shortage because you're less reliant on On, humans but actually you still need people on site to put these things together so is there some work that needs to be done still on getting the right amount of skills on site to allow people to put these things together just just as an example i think that um you raise a good point the likes of um i'll I'll mention them techcrete um there's um is it mp mccann they're okay, not yeah, yeah. So you tend to find that they are very experienced in mm. the systems that they utilize, yeah. And what will happen is they will get your design, you send it to them, and they will scrutinize it yeah. within their system. Mm. And they take um, responsibility for the installation as well. So if you've got a fully integrated contractor slash designer mm-hmm. that does that part of it and they interface with any other trades as a result of the work they're doing. I think that works well. But from my conversations with a lot of the bigger contractors, um, I found that they, they that system tends to work well. Yeah. On the proviso, that you have a good design manager who yeah. works client on, on the contractor side, yeah. and Absolutely. someone just coordinates it yeah. carefully and making sure that it's not the um, suppliers that are having full responsibility, yeah. that it's interfaced, as mm. you've mentioned, going back to your point, with yeah. everyone working together. Yeah. Um, so, have you, has anyone... Point, sorry, just Yemi's point about skills shortage, and yeah. that's something that's really, really, really problematic for the construction industry mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Just a huge labour shortage, past Brexit pandemic, etc. We just don't have as many people coming into the profession or construction yeah. industry, because it's not now seen as what it was before. A lot of construction... Uh, skills now are not the kind of um, artistic craft kind of idea of a bricklayer or carpenter used to be. Yeah. And actually, the more and more we are making uh, construction uh, mechanical and, and computerized, yeah. what you're leaving to labor is more assembly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's not a bad thing. What it means is actually you can have a lot of, you can have skilled labor that work within good conditions within a factory, but when you put things together on site, you can really use local labor that are trained to almost put things together because actually the systems are so simple. It's like putting together like some Lego and you can anybody could just be trained in a day. And I think that addresses a lot of labour shortages because mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need the skill. You could draw on local labour force and you could train really quickly to get. Um, so I think there's a, so there's a, there's a, there's now a question I have of um, you look at the the phone industry, you look at car industries, and you look at most other industries and they're very mechanised in the way that. So for instance, they can. Tesla can put together a car in how many hours? Mm-hmm. Maybe two or three hours or whatever, four hours or something like that. But housing, in its very nature, can take anywhere between, um, f- I would say, three to a year. On bigger schemes, it can take 32 months. So the question I have is, why do you feel the construction industry is so far behind in innovation in comparison to its competitor um, industries like car industry, Etc. So I would like to throw that towards <laughs> Hannah um, from your perspective, and then now also ask you, but that's okay. Yeah, I think um, the construction industry is very, very behind in technologies. The one of the the one the one industries that just haven't hasn't taken up um, 
a lot of the a lot of the technology that's required mm-hmm. and the speed that's required to manufacture housing, offices, buildings at yeah. large. Yeah. There are some subgroups of or sub sub um, tenures or within the built environment that are quicker and have taken it on board a little bit quicker, and so delivery is faster. However. It, there's there's several layers to this. You have to think about the makeup of the construction industry. Fundamentally, it is a bit of a boys' club, yeah. and people like to do things a certain way. In the way that and benefits them. Exactly, <laughs> and so it's a it's a it's a kind of repetitive um repetitive um way that people don't want to have to like learn a new trick. They just kind of want to keep going. Yeah. So you you have that. Then you have other things that influence it. And you think about the cost of MNC is higher, mm-hmm. and so for a client. They don't want their construction price to go up, mm-hmm. um, and the contractor wants to make as much money as possible off the yeah. project. So they're going to maintain the status quo mm-hmm. that enables them to keep making their money and still satisfy their client. Yeah, I like that. Um, but then it's kind of it's kind of it's really difficult because fundamentally we have this shortage. There's mm-hmm. this push for innovation. Mm-hmm. We keep talking about how. Um, BIM and other technologies can help improve construction mm-hmm. and delivery of homes. You know, yeah. where we have we have a housing crisis, mm-hmm. and all of these things should be um, an incentive enough to push people towards using innovation. more innovation, innovative yeah. things. And you know, we talk about innovation as as prop tech or construction tech, and and all it is really is a digitized form of like flashing a, a projector onto a wall. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like when we're talking yeah. about it, we're not talking about mechanizing the whole system. And so yeah. we've just got a mentality that's so behind the times that we need to like, that we need to unlock certain things. And I think, I speaking about this before, there has to be an incentive for construction mm. to change. Yeah. yeah, there has to be an incentive for developers to push contractors to change and deliver the way that something. they deliver. Exactly. Because um, you raise a good point there around contra- um, developers pushing their subcontractors. Yeah. If you've got a main contractor and subcontractors, some of the subcontractors may not have the resources to be able to innovate. Mm. And that is a totally different question, which I'm sure we're going to come yeah. to shortly. But I'm going to back it over to Bola. I think, yeah, and I think, I think you basically um, touched it and you hit the nail on the head. I think, for me, the question is, is that, um, you know, when consultants are delivering projects, they, they've got to take a lot of risks. So, you know, they want to do things the way they know how to do it. Yeah. Um, make sure they hit the time program because otherwise the um, risk of failure you know, can be quite huge. So um, I see the industry should be going in the direction of more research and development yeah. in a sense of creating that feedback loop. Because mm-hmm. at the moment, for me, I'm always keen on understanding the process from initial stage through to construction yeah. and finding out what worked well, what didn't work well, because that's that information is golden for you to feed back into the next uh, yeah. um, loop. And it'll be interesting to see if there's many clients out there who would like to share that burden in the sense of when it comes to research and development, so you talked about the car industry and the um, phone industry, they have put a huge amount of money mm-hmm. and capital into <laughs> research, yeah. yeah. but then they're slightly different because they get to keep the IP Whereas for construction, construction slightly different. Clients don't necessarily get to keep it because mm. you know it's a it's a moving on to another um, project. But that's essentially what we want to try to, if you like, encourage more of the feedback loop. If we can't do the research, then encourage people to understand how their designs has gone. Yeah.
get that knowledge because that's golden for the next um, process or the next phase. Thanks for watching. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe. I'm Adewale Ademalake, founder at A Lake, which specializes in property development and development management. We are sponsoring the first season of the Property Development Book Club podcast, which will be out on all platforms soon. So my, my thinking on why the construction industry is falling behind on innovation is because we're using today, we're trying to solve today's problems with the same thinking that we use to make those problems to begin with. And that, that, is, that is fundamentally the issue. So an example of that would be a brick was made a long time ago and the idea of the brick was something that was liftable in terms of its weight and dimensions by a single person handling a brick uh, in a traditional way and it's a broad site. Yeah. We are now trying to still build with bricks in a modern method, trying to create that same aesthetic but that material was never used was never created to be used in that way. So, you know, we split them now, stick them on a panel, bring them to site, but that material was never used to be to do that thing to begin with. So I think we need to push past that. And I think for me, some of the challenges around innovation are, particularly with housing design, that we approach, we approach a very small change in a problem with a fully bespoke solution mm -hmm. every single time. Yeah. Housing design is controlled by a lot of regulation, both from the GLA, from the space standards, planning. and yeah, from planning itself. And we don't need to be reinventing the wheel every time we get to site because yeah. there is so many, there is so much repeat knowledge and design that we are not reusing and learning from every single time. So for me, it's about how do we, how do we, th these pockets of research that have developed independently, yeah. how do you put that together to actually start to innovate? Mm -hmm. And that's where we're lacking. We're kind of creating these isolated bit of research projects, and we need to bring that together, led by the client, mm -hmm. but shared by the rest of the team. So you raise a good point um, very quickly around innovation. So I think that as an industry, I think we're good at learning of what we've done previously. Yes. And Are we're we? good at repeating. Oh, no, no, yeah. I, I, no, no. What, what I mean by that is, if you, look at, um, if you look at frame construction, yeah, that is a very old system that people have just competitive, repetitively used time and time again. So what I'm basically saying is, it's not innovative, but people have learned how to, to use previous systems time and time again. But that doesn't equals innovation. But you had a point to raise. Yeah, I think the, the point I wanted to raise is that we also need to remember that there's so many players involved in developing said projects. You've got just on this panel here, we've yeah. got so many yeah. different professionals. Yeah. And actually, the industry can be quite combative instead of collaborative. And we need all the players to kind of buy into whatever it is that we're trying to do and work together in delivering kind of innovation so we need so many professions to catch up so yeah. i think that's where also we see a bit of a, a delay because we're not all on the same page so can you teach an old dog new tricks well what do you think quickly before we move on to the next question maybe maybe <laughs> so that yeah. is a big problem hannah what do you think i think you can i just think you need to be like incentivized to do so the difference between our industry and cars and phones is that with a phone the apple when you want the end user to buy as many of their phones as and possible apps. <laughs> and apps and then with a car they're trying to make it as ergonomically um, friendly to the end user as possible we're building for almost insular you mm. know we, we don't have the same we don't have the same demand from our end user yeah. as other industry and other design products do, and so unless there's an incentive, like 
that's where they so incentive from. we need to have an incentive mm. as an industry yeah. to completely change yeah at the moment we don't have i that. totally you do have an incentive i would say the, the problems we are facing right now we can't solve them by carrying on in the way we do both when it comes to achieving net zero both when it comes to trying to make affordable housing and reaching the same amount of quality construction is so inefficient we're just kind of there is incentive i would say but it, it depends on who we're, we're not identifying everyone, right? Yes, you, net zero is so important and we do need to get there and that's why the change to building ranks is so important because it drives everyone to have to deliver to that. But you can still that, do that with traditional construction. So what, what, what I believe you're saying, and please, yeah. I'm not going to put the words no, into your mouth. You know when, it, when we look at incentive, yeah? Incentive is what is going to compel someone to do something that you, you want. So what I believe you're saying is, if there was a small developer, they are not incentivized to use MMC unless it's going to improve their profit position. They're not going to, there might be some, you know, like when we look at social value, when we look mm -hmm. at the whole, um, the whole bigger picture around um, sustainability, that stuff may not mean as much to a smaller developer as it will be to a publicly quoted building contractor or housing developer. So what I believe you're saying is that that incentive, it, the incentive may not only be financial, it could be various other things, exactly. but it needs to touch every single person. Exactly. But going back to that question, can you teach your old dog new tricks? What do you think? I think we can, but I, I get weary of points about incentivization. I feel like a lot of the private sector looks to the public sector here. To, to be the ones leading the way um, and being the ones that either either does it in two ways, either provides a huge wads of funding, which Homes England and GLA are doing, yeah. or has or, or uses the stick approach and says, well, you must have 50% PMV in your projects, otherwise we're not you're not going to be able to get planning permission. And I like the it. fact you say that around the public sector, with them being the enablers. Yes. However, Hannah's got an opinion. No, I'm just going <laughs> to say on this stick. Yes, use a stick. I mean, that's the only thing. That's the only yeah. way things get done. Like stick it's and incentive. Carrot and a stick. You have to force to things. Yeah. Like the building regs is a very clear example of things that are forced yeah. to improve the quality of our homes and yeah. the buildings and our environment. Definitely. Like force it. Then I, I think the stick is it. more important for me because this the stick is what's supposed to bring and and what building regs have been right now. Isn't, it's not been ambition. All it's been doing is, is bare minimum. So yeah. it's stopping the really, really awful, awful from being absolutely. It's not ambition. I disagree with what I'm deep saying. Even as the host. Even, even as the host. Don't disagree. No, the reason I disagree is because innovation cannot stem from a stick approach. The, the most creative people yeah, formed innovation from something that happened within them and that spurred them to do the most excellent things. So what I think is in buildings, I, don't, I feel that, you know, okay, as an example, I believe that the public sector can create a framework mm -hmm. that will enable, and I'm not disagreeing with that, but I don't think that um, the rules and regulations element of it, um, I, don't, I think that it needs to come from within and it needs to come from individuals trying to solve a problem. So I agree with you 100%, but not everyone in the industry can be innovative. So you have your, you have your, your innovation hub, the first, the first uh, steppers, for, let's say, yeah, and then yeah. everyone else has to follow. For everyone to follow, because you do have those people who are doing MMC, yeah. who are being in innovative, but for everyone else to follow and to do it at, at a slightly higher premium and a lower profit, 
Something has to yeah. happen. Something has to give. Something in. has to happen, and I think there is the innovation and all the stuff. So do you want? Do you want? Have you got a response to what I said? What I just said about the stick with it. What we're saying. I think I agree with Hannah. Actually, yeah. the stick. The sticks. The stick is about the bare minimum. It's mm. not. It's not. It's not telling those people you need to. You're going to suddenly go from there to. The, it's really stopping the creme like people from building things that are maybe no, not no, safe or low quality. Yeah. Yeah. But what we're saying is firstly, that's not, amb- that's not ambitious, ambitious enough to raise yeah. up because all Absolutely. a lot of people are doing right now is just doing the bare minimum that needs to be done. Yeah, and they're not raising the bar. Because for them, anything above that is cost. Yeah. And that but cost they yeah. can't realise exactly. because... So I, like, I would like to ask Yemi that question. Yeah. yeah? Around um, incentive, um, and mm. that question that we asked just now. <laughs> I strongly feel, I really, I, I think we kind of all agree, but I strongly believe that people look at building regs as, even though it's just, it's meant to be the minimum, people look at it as the maximum they need okay. to provide. Yeah, we're going to segue from that question, and the yeah. question is, mm. yeah, I'm going to try and remember my chain of thought, but the question is, yeah. can you teach an old dog new tricks? <laughs> Of course you can, but there needs to be a reason why people do things differently from what they're accustomed to, to doing. So in conclusion to that one, I'm just going to mention that, just going from what Hannah said, I like the fact that you said incentive. Mm. You mentioned the sticks, which is regulation. Yeah. F-class sticks and um, incentive is a financial return or whatever form mm. of return. So I feel that to, to change anything, you need a bit of both. You need, yeah. So I don't yeah. disagree with what you're saying 100%, yeah. 50% of <laughs> Yeah, so it's, it is a 50-50 yeah. thing. Yeah. So I think that we're now going to move into like something that is very important to us all, and is how do you design with MMC in mind? So how do you design with modern methods of construction in mind? So I would like to start off with Hannah. Okay. And please answer that, and then I'll ask Bola, and then you, you can have an okay. opinion, and you can as well, please. So go ahead. So when you're designing for MMC in mind, you have to decide which type of MMC you're going to do. Yeah. So obviously, I'm going to be giving you the different, the seven different categories. Yeah. If you are intending to do a fully, fully metric scheme, you have to know from the very beginning because all of your units have to be slightly bigger, mm-hmm. because when you're designing with that in mind, you have, um, you have, you have effectively, effectively pods, and then your, um, your, um internal or your external line party walls would have to be double the thickness mm-hmm. and so you actually your gea is slightly larger and your your the yeah your gea your gross external area yeah. is slightly larger and your nia um net internal area. your net internal area kind of slightly goes up to to help make make up for all of the additional walls that you have to put in yeah if you're doing a panelized system you don't necessarily have that same issue of a full volumetric, mm-hmm. um, but you still have to create enough space. So you have to consider exact sizing of your bathroom, your um, your your piping through the building, where you put your metering to access that, because there's there's now a new regulation around people having access to their meters. Um, and you have to also consider how that like how that feeds in everywhere. Um, if you're just doing, I say if you're just, but if you're doing more of an external MMC and panelized system, yeah. you have a little bit more flexibility in the process, so you can wait till later on down the line, mm-hmm. and then engage with a cladding specialist and uh, uh, to to design your your elevation. And at what stage in the in the Ruby stages, in your opinion, do you think that this this whole design involvement needs to take exactly. place. Well, if you're doing full volumetric and panelized system, it has to be from stage one. Stage like, one. So yeah. when I like on my on one of my projects, we looked at it 
literally a stage one because all of your units or your all your units effectively have to be similar because you have to have enough Repeat. Ma- yeah max like you have to maximize the efficiency mm. so that yeah. when you go out to order it actually works out slightly cheaper yeah so i wanted to just quickly ask a question for amandeep and yeah. this as the architect in the group and the architects <laughs> reba has a number of different stages so i don't know if you want to take us from reba stages zero to three just as a general point yeah, we could. Um, Between you. All right, well, let, let me do zero to three. <laughs> so, uh, well, stage zero, which a lot of people don't talk about and designers often don't get involved in, is the strategic brief. So this is a really important part where actually you have a lot of those MMC mm-hmm. conversations. Is this site appropriate for MMC? What are the benefits doing it? Which system should we use? So yeah. that's very early, defining the brief. No designs taking place. No designs. So is the client getting their ducks in a row? And it might be that you have designers or engineers involved at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, Often not. And stage stages one to two, so stages one is coming up with a concept, really high level, feasibility, capacity, understanding kind of um, what can be done with that site, understanding the constraints, the services, below ground services, planning requirements, etc. Stage two, you start to develop those ideas. You probably have had some more pre-application conversation with the planners. You've started to have conversation with residents. You've started to speak with utility companies. you start to grow the size of your design team to your... Um, you probably have uh, potentially engineers um, on at this stage, and I would come back to the MMC point of actually you want engineers way further, way much earlier when it comes to this type of uh, procurement. And then stage three is kind of developed design, um, and you're often going into uh, planning at stage three. And yeah, others go and you're submitting the planning, and you've got to tender at that point. Some yeah. people go further, but we're not going to go into the full stages. No, we'll touch on stages, we will say to zero to three. Yeah. But the reason why I say stage one is because that's when you're doing your feasibility. And the size of a unit is different from if it's a traditional build. And so it's slightly bigger. So you would effectively, um, what you'll do is you'll see how many units you can get on the site under MMC. It is going to be slightly lower than a traditional. Does your development appraisal stack up? If it does, press go and then you can continue on with that. But at that stage as well, you need to know who or which, which supplier you're going to yes. be using and start engaging with those people at that stage because then that will define all of your um, your engineering requirements. Inputs, M&E and everything else that goes into yeah. it. So um, we're going we're gonna to now get, and I, and I love the fact that you talked about it, um, Hannah mentioned <laughs> around development appraisals. Development appraisals is what myself, Hannah, as well as mm-hmm. Yemi will be carrying out and that is just a calculation of the profitability of your project Public set to do it one way, which we'll talk about in another podcast. Private set to do it in another, which we'll talk about. But I thought I'd just give you a bit of information as to what that is. Um, so the reason why this is a very important point is all of these conversations feed into what is a development appraisal. And a development appraisal is just running the numbers to make sure it's profitable. And we do that through this stage. And this is why this conversation is so important. So I would like to then move over to Bola to ask, how do you design with MMC in mind? Good question. I mean, I think... What's been said so far is, is pretty much what I would um, agree with. Mm-hmm. But to add to that, um, I feel that um, people who are designing MMC products need to understand what it would look like. So I would encourage all consultants to go to factories. Yes, mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jump into them and understand their systems. Because if you can understand one factory system or one um, contrastor system, understand another contrastor system, you've got so much value to add at the early stage. Yes. Because that doesn't necessarily close the market for your client, okay? Because 
you although you do you should have um, a specialist at early stage that specialist doesn't need to be a contractor it yes. can be a consultant who is au fait with all um, the different systems correct yeah so um, and then again I agree with um, what was said previously about get engineers in the appraisal as soon as possible mm. yeah and, mm -hmm. and, and, and I really I really appreciate that and, and what, what you've heard today heard Hannah talk about it from a developer's point of view you've had Bola talk about it from a development I'm from a, um, an engineering point of view and that point around getting your consultants and I'm speaking directly quantity surveyors <laughs> architects structure engineers don't just give your clients oh we think it could work speak to your suppliers speak to Techcrete speak to FP McCann speak to whoever you can that can just give you a solution and then you can understand the realms and, uh, and, and, and what you effectively need to design to, to achieve what we want as clients. So this then leads on to this point around early contractual engagement as you just mentioned. And I want to now ask this question, I'll first ask it to um, both of yourselves mm -hmm. from a public point of view and I'll ask Hannah. So this question is, what are the procurement challenges um, between the public and private sector? So in short, public sector is councils, housing associations, government entities, house, and, and those, that's what our class is, public sector. Private sector is your private developer. It could be someone that's a PLC, etc. the likes of Balfour BT Investments, or the company that Hannah works for. So can I first ask you that question, yeah. if that's all right, please? So I, I think fundamentally what you're trying to do with MMC, uh, as Paul was saying, is get closer to the supply chain. Bring the systems and the manufacturing data from right at the end of the process to the designers, to the QSs, and to the developers, and and actually, and the next layer of that is actually form, forging relationships to do that. Forging relationships so that those MMC suppliers get an understanding of demand that is likely to come, so that they can innovate. Mm. If you want to foster a relationship like that, that is that completely clashes with how you procure in the public sector, right? Yes. Because in the public sector. There is, it's all about openness. It's all about actually maximizing the availability of who you can go out to. Yeah. So, and you're, you're also bound by public procurement rules. And it's public contract regulations, I believe it's 2015. You have to competitively tender yeah. and you can't just engage with one person. You have to do it openly. So I might absolutely want to work with XXX supplier because I've seen them do fantastic work and I want to pick up the phone and call them and say, can you work on with me on this next, next project and I've got a pipeline coming up for you. I can't do that. Yes. If I'm trying to foster, if I'm trying to create a relationship with them so they can innovate, I have to do it through an open, open system where I have three, three suppliers. Or a framework. Or a framework. And, and I think that is the biggest challenge that we have as a public sector organisation okay. because we know we have to make that relationship, we know we have to give commitment for demand, but we can't do that without having a more open way of procuring. Whereas I think Hannah could pick up the phone and call XYZ, um, so I need it done XYZ. and I, oh, same, same thing with designers, you could be like, I liked working with you last time, can you start tomorrow yeah. on a project? Yes, so yes, in theory, yeah, that's actually what, I, I have that flexibility to be able to say, okay, actually I, I would prefer to work with that person. Mm. However, I do think there's prudency in doing a tender just to test the market and make sure that actually you're getting the best value. So, yes, I can do that, but I would, I, like typically I would also test the market. Yes. But I get, again, I get the option as to who I choose based on what I like. Who I and it's good value. business practice to test the market. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I think that it doesn't matter if you're public or private, mm. you no. should always go out and get at least three quotes. Yeah. And you need to market test it because. 
the unfortunate thing is, and I'm not, I'm not going to mince my word in this, if you speak to three different people, there might be three different outlooks to whatever the solution is, and you can benefit from two other points of views. Yeah. And I think this is the beauty of, of going out and competitively mm. tendering, because you yeah. get different ideas mm. that you can maybe utilise. So I think this is the beauty of, this is the, when I talk about innovation, it's about sharing information, mm. it's about doing things better. That's one thing you do get in the construction industry, yeah, you get people thinking about issues, yeah. trying to solve these issues, and then you can cross fertilize it to other areas. So, did you just hear that? <laughs> it's a grenade. <laughs> <laughs> the grenade is coming. Let's go. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, the grenade. Bola's <laughs> like, Bola? I don't want to look around like, what's that? No, it's not, not edit out, it's good. So, so the question is, does MMC hinder design and creativity? So we're just going to, let's just be honest, does it? Yes or no? Yes. No. Yes. Depends. Architects and, always, and, I, and I say depends. If you ask me, if you ask me, Adewole, I want you to design a landmark gallery in central London. Yes. I will say absolutely yes. Mm-hmm. But if you tell me I want, I've got a regular plot of land and I want housing design, I would say no. And, and if actually it, it could do the opposite, mm. it so, could foster really good creativity. So, so in terms of a vote, you said yes, yes. You said no. No. And then you said maybe. So it looks like it's a yes, but in my personal opinion, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> yeah, function follows. Full follows. No. <laughs> <laughs> function and i think that that is going to be another conversation we'll be having i hope you enjoyed it this is the property development book club we've spoken about um mmc i'd like to thank bala hannah amandeep and yemi watch out for the next episode architects, quantity surveyors, development managers, planners, you name it. Uh, so we come together regularly to have in-depth conversations about key topics within the built environment to share with you, educate you guys and get your feedback on what we're discussing. We look forward to, to continuing to provide you with interesting content. So don't forget to like, share and subscribe. If you like what you see, make sure you get in touch with us, drop us a line, what do you want us to talk about and we'll make sure that we talk about this in the next season.